Thank you for listening to the Waterstone Community Church podcast. We hope you're enjoying God's word proclaimed. We are a growing movement of transformed people, reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. If you'd like to know more about Waterstone or to find out about our service times, please visit us at waterstonechurch.org. When you live in the 21st century America, you have to listen to a lot of people talk about how busy they are. It's even become part of our cultural greeting. How are you doing? I'm busy. I'm so busy. I'm crazy busy. I hear that one the most. I've used that one. Knowing full well that it was a boast disguised as a complaint. You see, busyness has become this existential hedge against emptiness. I mean, obviously, if you're booked for every hour of every day, your life must not be trivial. No one has articulated this complaint against American culture better than David Zoll, who writes a blog called The Mockingbird. He writes, one of the most transparent and potent expressions of the law. Now, he's not talking about a biblical law. He's talking about cultural law, being an American, who you must be, what you must do, how you must do it. In our cultural context is busyness. Perhaps more than anything else in modern American life, busyness serves as an almost universal barometer of identity and, therefore, self-justification feeding on itself and fostering an environment of collective distraction at best, misery at worst. As we are fond of saying, everyone is religious, not just those who believe in God or go to church. Works righteousness is the default mode of human operation, not just the select few who identify as religion. Now I think with this busyness, every one of us is implicated especially at church. Church culture can be the most performance, toxic, driven culture in our culture. No one has called this out, this idea that we're always trying to check our boxes, finishes our list as if we gain approval with God through the most completed checklists. No one has pushed back on this harder in church world than the late Eugene Peterson. It is the only sin I know of that a Christian can commit not only with impunity, but with applause. Not bad. It has all the exhilaration of breaking the rules with none of the consequences, at least none of the social consequences. With such built-in blessings and such a handsome payback, it is little wonder that this tops the charts as the favorite sin among Christians. It is the one sin we can indulge to our heart's content and get praised as saints in the very act. It is the American bargain basement sin on sale in virtually every American church with a free instruction manual thrown in. The sin, Sabbath breaking, the willful violation of the fourth commandment. Now, I wanna make you feel even more guilty. I want us to do a little bit of exploration and evaluation of our inner world, your life. How busy are you? Are you in danger 
of busyness. Here's a evaluation tool. Answer not aloud for yourself. Would your life be described as rushed, unblinking movement from task to task, trying to keep up with your schedule? Do you find yourself resentful of the expectations and the demands you feel on your time, especially from your loved ones? And by the way, I think moms might be exempt from some of these. You're welcome. Are you running on fumes? But when your head hits the pillow, your mind can't turn off yesterday or tomorrow. Lastly, do you sense your heart is shrinking? Does your life feel shallow and honestly quite self-absorbed because even though you are doing a lot, you don't seem to be doing much that matters? How you doing in this world of busy? You know, I'm convinced God saw this coming. He made us, he loves us, he saved us. He saw this coming. I mean, he knows our frame and our canvas. We're his masterpieces, he calls us, but he knows us well. He knows our weaknesses, our tendencies, our propensities. And so, he came up with this thing that he wants to give to us again today. This thing called Sabbath. Sabbath rest. I submit to you, it's the power of work. Now, let's walk through the last three weeks. We've had this idea that work is 88,000 hours of our life. 88,000 hours you will be on the job. So it's good to have a frame through which to look and say, what's the point? The point from the Christian perspective is that God is a worker. Jesus in John chapter five called his father the worker. It's this picture of when God made us, he had his hands down in the dust, he has dirt under his fingernails. We have a God who works and he made us in his image which means we work, we're wired to work. We take pleasure in work, we're, we're driven to work. God is a worker. In his image we are made, we are workers, which gives dignity to every person's work, as long as it's legal, every person's work is elevated. Helping God, partnering with God in creation care, in culture care, and in human flourishing. That's work, it's big, it's good. But last week, as good as it is, it can't save us. Work promises satisfaction, it promises recognition, it promises contribution to give our lives meaning, but if we make work a good thing into an ultimate thing and say to it, meet my needs, oh, those needs are far too deep, those needs for love, those needs for respect. Work, a good thing, can't be an ultimate thing and be God to us and meet the needs of our heart. No matter how hard we try, work can't save us, but we can save our work by practicing these kingdom rhythms called uh, restore, which is seeing God as your boss, which as Doug talked about, having a distinct work ethic as a believer, knowing that we're working for God and with God in human flourishing. You don't just have a job, you have a calling, no matter what it is. 
Secondly, we neighbor at work, which means we want our coworkers to experience what friendship with Jesus is like through us. And then lastly, work is a, as a laboratory of transformation. So when you're walking into that front door of your place of work, you say to God just before you walk in, okay, God, next eight to 10 hours, what are we working on today? Perseverance, patience, power of words, how to be an encourager. What do you want to work on? Here's my heart. Let's go. You see, work, it can't save us but we can save our work. But if you're gonna engage work at that level and be sustained, you need some power for your work. And I submit to you that the power of work is rest. They have a symbiotic relationship. If it's all work, 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 and no rest, you'll enter the world in weakness. If it's all rest, 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 and no work, you'll enter the world in weakness. But if it's work with a disciplined rest, a Sabbath rest, your work life can be sustained. And so today, we want to talk about the power of work, which is rest, and a specific kind of rest called Sabbath rest. So, two questions. What is Sabbath rest, and how do we do it? Are you ready? Okay. Should I keep going? Yes. It's given twice in Scripture this idea of a Sabbath rest. And the nuances are interesting. In fact, I did not fully see the nuances till this past week while I was working. It's been really interesting to see the differences in the two times the Sabbath command, the fourth commandment, is given. So the first time is here in Exodus. Again, asking the question, what is the Sabbath? So we didn't have a scripture reading this morning because you're on the schedule. Would you read aloud with me? Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns." For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So, um, there we see, uh, let's start with some definitions. What, what is this? I'll read it after the sermon, okay? Thank you. Um, Some definitions. First, Sabbath. It simply means stop, cease, cool it, take some time off. Sabbath means stop. The idea of remember in the Hebrew, it's a progressive verb, a fluid verb, which means remember and keep remembering. So remember, remember, always remember, and keep remembering what? To stop. Always remember to stop, and the way you do that is by keeping it holy. Now, holy is a big word in the Bible. 
in the Christian religion, holy is a big word, usually used to describe God. We say God is holy. What do we mean by that? Well, the idea of holiness is separation. So for God, it's in two directions. The first direction is that God is separate from all that is sinful, all that is wasteful, all that is finite and ordinary. God is separated from all that, while at the same time, God is separated to all that is good and righteous and pure. So you have this sense of he's separated from the ordinary while at the same time separated unto the extraordinary. Now, that's for God. I'm guessing you have some holy things in your house. I know that in our house, we have holy dishes. Here's the first kind of holy dish that we have in our house. This is in our hutch. There are stories about these dishes. They're old and they're valuable and they need to be taken care of with great care. Jan's probably told me 30 times in our 32 years of marriage, but I have no idea what these dishes are for or or what we do with them. I know that we don't bring them out often. In fact, I asked Jan this week, how often have we used these dishes? And she said, maybe a handful of times in 32 years. Why? Well, first of all, because we don't have serving plates, just dessert plate and one serve tray, and these glasses only hold like an inch of fluid. So, here's the thing though. If you're ever over at our house and we bring these dishes out, we must really like you. You see, there's a sense in which holiness and a holy day is a day that's to be special a day that's to be different from all the ordinary six days. You have a China day. Now here's the other kind of holy dish in our house. That's a dog dish. That dish belongs to someone in our house who is unlike anyone else. Onyx is his name. Some of you have loved Onyx in this room. Holy unto dog is that dish. Do you get the sense of a Sabbath day, it's a day that's not ordinary, while at the same time, a day that's drawn to the one who's extraordinary. That's holy, that's a holy day. You make it a different day, you make it a day for being drawn to the one who's extraordinary. Now, did you notice in Exodus why we should do this? and honor this kind of day each week? It says in the text, the reason we should do this is God rested on the seventh day. Now, think to yourself, did God need to rest? Did God get to the end of his week, finish his Friday, and say, thank me, it's Friday? (laughs) Was God like worn out, tired, weary? No, of course, God is inexhaustible. He is life itself. He never gets tired, never gets fatigued. He is abundant, God. He didn't need to rest. Well, why did he rest? He rested to shape reality. He rested to say, here's the rhythm of the universe. Six days of work, one day of rest. Six days of activity, one day of reflection. Six days of productivity, one day of gratitude and enjoyment. That's the rhythm of the world. 
resist that rhythm at your own peril. Doesn't matter if you're a God-fearer, a Christ follower, that's the rhythm of the world and the way it works and you resist at your peril. And what's your peril? If you don't rest, you'll be exhausted. You'll be self-absorbed. You'll be angry. You'll break down at some point. You will be lonely. Resist at your peril because the way God has made the world is this 6-1 Sabbath rhythm. So that's the first reason that we keep a Sabbath is because it's the rhythm of the world. Second reason is in Deuteronomy. And as we read this, I'll read it, you follow along because I want you to think, what's different? What's Moses changed? Now, when Moses gave the commandment in Exodus, it was at the very beginning of Israel's uh, uh, collection after uh, being delivered from Egypt. Here in Deuteronomy, which means second law, Moses is about to die and he's reviewing the law. But notice the little nuance and change he throws in. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Not too much difference so far, almost word for word. Here we go. Remember, here's why to do it. You were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath. If the first reason we practice Sabbath is because that's how God's made the world, the second reason is because we remember that we're part of the story of God's world, what he's doing in this world. You see, in the Exodus, when Israel was in Egypt, they were not being treated as human beings. They were merely a cog in Pharaoh's work wheel. They had to work to stay alive. And then God freed them through the blood of the lamb, through the sacrifice of the firstborn. God freed them and brought them out of that slavery. And now they're free. And now they don't have to work to stay alive. They have freedom. Well, you know that the Exodus metaphor became a a, a symbol of salvation throughout the rest of the scriptures and biblical history, such that now the Exodus points to Jesus. And because Jesus has done the work, the blood of the lamb, the firstborn son dying, he died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the grave to promise us eternal life. He lived the life we should have lived, so we have his righteousness. God sees us as righteous. He died the death we should have died and were forgiven. See, God has done in Christ all that work which eliminates, listen, the work beneath the work. What's the work beneath the work? We tapped that last week. Remember, sometimes we turn uh, work, which is a good thing, into an ultimate thing, and we want it to be God to us and meet the deep needs of our heart and love and respect. How do we do that? By expecting our work to build our identity. By expecting our work to give us the verdicts that we crave. Oh, you're a strong person. You're a good person. You have this great skill. Keep coming. We, you know, never enough. 
The other thing we want out of work is to give our lives meaning. Now, work is a good thing, but it's not an ultimate thing, and it can't give us those things. Jesus is the one who gives us those things through his death on the cross and his gifting of his righteousness. We have the needs, the deep needs of our heart met. The only opinion of us that counts is Jesus' opinion of us. And what's his? You are loved. You are accepted. You are beautiful. You are holy. You're mine. We have those verdicts from the only one who can ultimately give them. Therefore, Jesus does the work beneath the work, the heart work, so that we can see work as a pleasure. Do you remember the movie Chariots of Fire? I'm like incredulous that some of you weren't even born when this movie came out, 1981. It's the true story of two men who worked. The first one is Eric Liddell. He was a Christian. He came into the 1924 Olympics in Paris, the favored, I believe it was in the 200-meter race. When he gets to Paris, he understands for the first time that that actual race is going to be on the, his Sabbath day, a Sunday during worship. And he's in turmoil, but he makes this decision that he's not going to race when he should be at worship. You know, and we're not saying that's the way, but it was his way and his conscience. And so, listen, he decides to walk away from a chance to win a gold medal in a race in which he was favored. Why? Why didn't that crush him? Earlier in the movie, his sister Jen had asked him, why do you run? I mean, you want to be a preacher. He went on to be a missionary in China. Why don't you just dive in and preach? Do you remember his answer to his sister? Yeah. He said, God made me fast, Jenny. And when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Now, contrast that with the other hero of the story, Harold Abraham. Harold Abraham was favored in the 100 meters, one of the fastest men in the world. But all through the movie, he's tortured. He's in misery. And it finally comes out in the locker room a few moments before he goes out for the race. Another runner was trying to encourage him. And Harold Abraham says, why, why am I so tortured? Because I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. To justify my existence. You see? Two very different views of work and why we work. And because Jesus has done the work, our hearts can rest, and he gives us rest. So that's the Sabbath, what it is. It's the rhythm of creation, and it's the story in which we are immersed where Jesus has done the work to give our hearts rest so that even at work, we can have rest. That's the Jesus story. Now, next question, last question. How do we do Sabbath? Three quick things. First, stop, second, look, third, glisten. Stop, look, and glisten. I know it's hokey, but it will pokey. You'll remember this. Stop, look, and glisten. Stop. Stop means stop. 
stop work. Now, the Sabbath comes into the church not in a prescriptive kind of form where even today the Orthodox Jews and faith observant Jews you know, have dinner on Friday, no work until dinner and sundown on Saturday night. It's prescripted. But in the Christian world, it's not prescripted. It's a principle. You should build Sabbath rest into your schedule in whatever way it fits. For some of us, that might mean a half day here and two evenings during the week, however you get it in. So I want to say it's not prescriptive. It's a principle that you absorb into your life. But I also, at the same time, want to say, listen, if you don't plan it, it won't happen. We need to be intentional about it. Some of you couples need to drive home and talk about how are we doing with this idea of rest and Sabbath? How are we going to do it? How are we going to honor this? What's our schedule need to look like? And you may do it every month and evaluate just the seasons of life. It's fluid. But if you don't plan it, it won't happen. You need to plan Sabbath rest as much as you plan the other six days. So stop. Look. Look is two directions. Up, you connect with the story. As we've talked about, the Jesus story. You connect with the rhythm. You connect with God. We need the biggest dose of God we can get at least once a week. And the best place to do that is in a gathering such as this, where we open his word and says, here's what God says. And who God is. Holy, holy, holy. When we know who he is, we know who we are. And so Garrison Keillor summed this up better than I could ever say it, and quicker, actually, when he says, Sunday feels odd without church in the morning. It's the time in the week when we take our bearings, and if we miss it, we're just following our noses. And so we connect with God, and we see our place in his story again. The second thing we do is connect with one another, family and friends. Now, let me say something really practical. Part of knowing about the Sabbath is you also need to know who you are. If you're an introvert, you need parts of Sabbath where you can be alone. And let me tell you that family is not always Sabbath. Oh, I thought I'd get an amen from like that. Sometimes you need a break from your family. <laughs> Sometimes you need to negotiate with friends or especially with spouses and you need to get your introvert needs met by the other person giving you Sabbath rest or your extrovert needs where you need to go find a party. We're having one here next week, by the way. Stay tuned. You need to honor how you're wired and make that part of how you fill up again on the Sabbath. So you stop, disciplined, intentional. You look, God in the story, and at one another, and then you glisten. I know it's hokey, but get out there and sweat. What do you love to do? John Calvin, the great reformer hero, used to bowl on Sunday afternoons. How terrible. Uh, Jonathan Edwards used to ride horses once a week, and he'd come back with pieces of paper pinned to his jacket from all the great thoughts he'd had while he his mind was at rest. What a picture. Abraham Lincoln endured the Civil War with his wife Mary by going to the theater on an almost weekly basis. What do you love? 
What's life-giving to you? What gift of creation can you get out there and enjoy? By the way, you notice in the Genesis account, right? God's watching this. It's good, it's good, it's good. And then he, ta- he rests on the seventh day, and what's he say? It's really good. It's like he's playful about all that he's made, and he's enjoying it so much. Have you ever read Job 38 and 39? God asked these questions like, where were you when I created the mountain goats? And where were you when I brought the hail and the rain and the snow out of the storehouses? And where were you when I made the hawk? And where were you when I made the horse? It's like he's hiking through Colorado. How about you? Will you enjoy this good creation as much as God does? Will you sweat? A good sweat on the Sabbath. So, here it is. Folks, you have a choice to make as we get ready to leave this morning. You need to choose if you will receive this gift of Sabbath rest. God has put it in place and made it the rhythm of our world. And he said, I want you to stop. Make this day extraordinary. And on this day, remember the story of which you're a part. That Jesus has done the work to give your heart freedom. You don't have to work to be saved, but you can take your salvation to work. And then get out there. Stop. Look. Glisten. Your choice. Receive this good gift that God's given. Amen.